0: without the ads a lot can happen in the next 3 years like a chatbot maybe your new
1: best friend This podcast is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. Today's guest is really fascinating and hugely knowledgeable on the mental health world. He's actually a serving police inspector and I was really struck when I first heard him speak on this issue because it is so multifaceted, it is so complex. How do you police the streets and police people in the world of the mental health issues that we're sort of working with today and the grey area where these laws really conflict? So Michael why don't you introduce yourself and tell our listeners exactly what it is you do?
2: My name is Inspector Michael Brown. I'm a West Midlands police officer. I've been in the police for just over 21 years and uh, I'm known on Twitter as Mental Health Cop. Um, I write a blog under the same name that I've done for about the last seven or eight years. Um, I became interested in policing and mental health specifically when I first joined and realised that my training didn't prepare me for what I was professionally becoming responsible for. And if I'm honest, I just got interested. What, what are my legal powers? What are my roles and responsibilities?
1: And how long is the training for police officers?
2: Well, I got four hours. Um,
1: four hours? Four hours. I thought it was bad for prison officers.
2: Yes. I mean, that was 1998. And, and part of the work I've been doing over the last five years is to radically improve that. So the-
1: Really?
2: Four hours? Four hours, yeah. <laughs> and actually, the, my standard joke about that, if I'm honest, is that half of it I now know was wrong in terms of how the law oh was explained God. so it it's um it wasn't very much and that's that's part of the issue is police officers don't get enough training around mental health yeah. of course in loads of aspects other areas of training for police like when you train around personal safety or the use of batons and handcuffs and cs some of the scenarios are predicated on mental health related incidents um when you do public order training or what some people would call riot training uh, some of those scenarios are predicated on for example doing building entry to people who might have mental health conditions and all baseball bats and so on to kind of prepare yourself for the reality of dealing with seriously aggravated resistance so there are other elements of mental health in other parts of training but in terms of saying right today student officers your training is now is today on mental health that was a four-hour session now it's two days as, as the college okay. of policing stipulated it should be a minimum of two days so that there can be proper depth of mental health law as well as uh, not just an overview of major conditions but also things like Um, Having a service user come into the room and tell you what it feels like to live with auditory hallucinations and to tell you what it feels like to be policed, to tell you what it feels like to be forced into a cell when you've broken no laws whatsoever because sometimes officers find themselves in a position where we have to keep people safe by taking them somewhere and history shows that sometimes there hasn't necessarily been anywhere other than a cell. Um, so just trying to get officers to be able to empathise with people when they've probably not been in that predicament and probably haven't got relatives who've been through that predicament.
1: But that must be so hard because how are you as an officer on the front line, so you're walking along the street, you know, you have to make an unbelievable judgement at some point as to whether someone's mentally ill or whether they're just playing up. I mean, how on earth are you meant to do that, even with the, all the training in the world, you know, it's-
2: yeah, it's tricky, a brilliant tricky it, job. It is, yeah, and it, it's a brilliant question because, of course, um, as I never failed to point out, sometimes psychiatrists are given twenty-eight days of detaining someone in a mental health hospital and a twenty-four-seven team of nurses to observe someone in order to work out whether somebody has a mental disorder or not. Now, of course, they're trying to make a more, much more nuanced assessment than a police officer would, but um, history shows that sometimes officers have had forty-seven seconds in a real example I can think of to make a judgment: is someone mentally ill? And if so, how do I deal with the fact that they're posing an imminent risk either to themselves or perhaps less often to someone else and to then make their professional decisions accordingly about either whether to use force or whether to arrest or detain or not? It can be pretty uh, you know, on-the-spot stuff. And yeah. you know, inevitably, police officers tend to be selected and recruited, frankly, because of what we hope would be a, a huge dose of common sense. And obviously, some mental health conditions are slightly more easy to spot if you like than others like if somebody's psychotic and they're responding to auditory or visual hallucinations that might be a more obvious set of behaviors to make you think someone's kind of has a mental illness whereas for example autism is sometimes described as being the invisible condition so if if you meet someone who has high functioning autism um it may well be you could be speaking to that person for hours before you start to get a sense that maybe they've got some kind of um, developmental disorder or condition. And you don't
1: have that time, I imagine. You know, we we all know the headlines about the police over the last few years, and numbers have been cut and budgets have been cut and no one has any time anymore. So what do you, Michael Brown, do with a guy or a woman with autism? You don't have however many hours to work it out.
2: No, you don't. And sometimes the, the lack of time is, is forced upon you from a legal point of view because you, for example, if somebody's been arrested for an offence because they've been accused of something... And it's, you you have a a legal framework that says you've got 24 hours to process that person legally and reach your legal decision about a prosecution. And there are examples of where somebody may have been in custody for 18, 20 hours before suddenly a piece of information comes in or an observation is made that makes you think, actually, I wonder if this person has a a medical condition that so far has, has, has skipped us and that they haven't mentioned when we've asked them about their medical background. And that leaves you still with the kind of six to four to six hours left in which to then you know, make good the fact that you hadn't spotted it until that time. So it can be time critical. But I suppose the the police being usually pretty practical people, you you can only do what you can reasonably do. And mm-hmm. um, and of course, the the role of the police when it comes to mental health is not around diagnosis and treatment and so on. It's sometimes about containment and onward referral. And sometimes that doesn't have to be time critical because not everybody's acutely mentally ill when they come into contact with the police. Sometimes it's just about signposting to appropriate agencies and hoping that either tomorrow or the day after or maybe next week, they'll be picked up by a, a GP or a community mental health service.
1: So are there different laws that sort of sit around the mental health world compared to people who don't have a mental health? problem or issue.
2: Yes, and there are laws, if you like, within uh, criminal law that mean when the police are dealing with either vulnerable victims or vulnerable suspects, uh, we criminally investigate in a way that takes account of their disability or their uh, vulnerability. Um, So the main ones, of course, are the Mental Health Act 1983, which is uh, all about illnesses like bipolar and depression and schizophrenia.
1: 83.
2: Yeah, nineteen eighty three. Um, it's been updated a, a lot. The Act has been amended, and it was for in police uh, specific context. It was it was last updated for us in a meaningful way in two thousand and seventeen, which is not all that long ago. Um, so the, the the big police powers under the Mental Health Act are sections one hundred and thirty five and one hundred and thirty six of the Mental Health Act. What do they mean? So 136 is the big one. This is the thing that says um, if a constable um, thinks that someone has a mental disorder and they believe that person to be in immediate need of care or control, then the officer can take them to a place of safety to keep them safe and get so is, them assessed. So is
1: that what we know as being sectioned?
2: Not strictly. It's occasionally referred to in that way. We do hear people talking about, oh, the police sectioned this person Um I can hear mental health professionals in my own head at the moment saying that's not quite what sectioned means. Sectioned means that you've had an, an assessment by a mental health social worker who's known as an AMP, which stands for approved approved mental health professional, it's known as an AMP. Um, 95% of AMP's are mental health social workers by background, but they've done additional training and qualification in mental health act law. And that gives them a warrant card in the same way that I carry a legal warrant card. And it empowers them to make legal decisions under the Mental Health Act in respect of vulnerable people. But if an AMP is going to section a person, they have to have doctor's recommendations and medical opinion to allow them to do that.
1: Okay. And you could be sectioned under any different section?
2: There's lots of sections, but it essentially boils down to just two things. You're either sectioned to assess a mental disorder. In other words, do you have a mental disorder? If so, which one and what are your treatment requirements? Or if we know you have a mental disorder because you've already got a diagnosis from a psychiatrist, you can be sectioned for treatment of that mental disorder if treatment can only be provided <clears throat> in hospital. Uh, of course, a lot of people receive perfectly uh, good treatment outside of hospital. So the treatment provision, section three of the Mental Health Act, that's a provision which is there purely for people who are wouldn't be safe if they were treated in the community, they would need hospital detention in order to keep them safe because they need a more intensive level of care. Okay. So section two is for assessment, section three is for treatment, and all the other sections you could be sectioned under are variations of those two principles.
1: Right, so you covered section 136, but I interrupted you. So what's one section 135?
2: Okay, so the, the thing I didn't say about 136 is that the police can only use that power in, in, a, um, in a place that's not a dwelling. Um, If you're in your own home, an Englishman or English person's home is their castle, etc. So 136 can only be applied in a public place or in a private place that's not a dwelling. Um, 135 is the legal mechanism that uh, is used if there needs to be entrance into people's private homes in order to remove them to keep them safe. But 135 becomes complex for the police purely in the sense that... Uh, it's about the issuing of warrants by a magistrate, and the police can't apply for the warrants. It's it, back to that person we've already named, the AMP. An AMP has to get a warrant under 135 and then attend the premises with a doctor and the police in order to. How long to, might that take? It could take. Uh, it can be done in an hour. There are, oh, wow. there are some examples of where um, pressure has been put. Um, I've been part of an incident where many years ago in Birmingham, a, a man had barricaded himself into his own bedroom in his own home. He lived there with his mother. Um, he pushed the furniture up against the wall. He was really paranoid, very, very unwell. He had a history of mental health issues, and services, and fairness, had gone out to try and see if they could persuade him to move the furniture, be assessed, and go to hospital. It hadn't worked, and... To keep the story short, they rang the police. Um, but because he's in a private house, we can't go there and use Section 136. And because they hadn't yet formally assessed him under the Mental Health Act, he wasn't sectioned. Mm. And therefore, and there's no way
1: they were about to be able to no, assess him.
2: because he was on the other side of a door <laughs> yeah. and, and frankly in possession of a knife, albeit he hadn't threatened anyone with the knife. There was no criminal offence involved. Um, he was, his mother, for example, had said that uh, he possessed the knife as something like a comfort blanket. It was just something that he felt mel- made him feel safe. Uh, so in the absence of it being sectioned and in the fact that we can't use 136, 135 was the only legal route to being able to uh, facilitate an assessment that he was refusing to engage in. So with, we took used a police car to take the amp to a magistrate to swear out the warrant. The police car then drove the amp back to the incident all out of hours on a Saturday evening. Bye. Um, and when the amp returned with the warrant, that meant because there was a doctor there as well, the police, the doctor and the amp have to be present together. We could go to mum and say, right, we can now um, force entry into the into the bedroom. She was more than happy for us to be in the house. The issue was forcing the way into the bedroom and being able to take control of the chap once we got through the door. Mm. Um, because quite honestly, as soon as we went through the door, he he tried to hurt the police officers with the knife. Right. Now, we'd sent them in improper equipment. They were never at serious risk. In fact, the, the amusing part of the incident is that they did try to use a taser but merely managed to taser themselves oh, um a police officer actually managed to taser his colleague but uh, that, oh, no. that, that got mentioned a lot afterwards oh, as you no. might imagine um but the chap himself was relatively uninjured given that what most people would regard as riot police had had gone through the door um, and he was removed to hospital to have some minor treatment to some minor injuries and um, he stood on a, a a plate with a plate had broken in the room he stood on this in a bear with a bare foot as the police were entering. So he had, you needed some stitches to the bottom of his foot. Otherwise he was uninjured and he was sectioned out of an A&E department into a mental health hospital.
1: Half of me thinks, well, it's really comforting to know that these hoops have to be jumped through to protect potentially the person who is vulnerable. However, do you find as a police officer that actually a lot of the time that just gets in the way of everything? So how do, how do you juggle those two things? Because I yeah. think obviously both are in, important.
2: Yeah, they are, because you want safeguards against um, uh, invasion of liberties and autonomies. But on the other hand, you want the police to be able to keep people safe when they're not safe. Yeah. Um,
1: And if that magistrate hadn't been around or... Would the amp be driven around to find any magistrate that might be awake yeah, or not on well, holiday, or sort of?
2: The courts have to provide an amp, uh, sorry, the courts have to provide a magistrate to be available 24 hours for urgent warrants. That's that's part of the, the deal. So that there's always a JP somewhere <clears throat> who can be called upon. There's a rotor in the police control room that tells you which JP on which occasion. Um, so that that bit's not usually the issue. That there can be an issue if I'm honest. Um, with the availability of amps. Um, in the example I gave, it was an amp led thing where they had called the police for support. But if in a different instance and there are many the police had been the lead agency or indeed the ambulance service had been the lead agency at a job where they then felt right we've got a, a vulnerable person in their own home we've got no route to safeguarding this person other than through things like 135 and 136 well they can call the police for 136 that's easy but if you need to think about 135 or mental health assessments in people's homes um, you need an AMP, and uh, sometimes recruitment and retention problems mean that they're not always available. And if they are the AMPs themselves, who I must say I've got a lot of respect and sympathy for AMPs, they're, um, they're the uh, the unsung heroes of the mental health system in the sense that lots of people haven't heard of them. We know about mental health nurses, we know about psychiatrists, uh, we don't often hear much about AMPs, Um, but they are the legally qualified, legally warranted people in the mental health system, and they're crucial to the operation of anybody being sectioned or assessed or safeguarded. Um, but they themselves face huge problems. So, for example, an AMP in, uh, in Wales uh, told me a story recently about wanting to convene a mental health assessment for a vulnerable person. So they need a doctor and they rang 30 different doctors before one of them would agree to come and support the AMP and an assessment.
1: Why? Just because um, they're so busy?
2: It's sometimes because they're busy, um, but it's also sometimes that the, the provision of doctors... Uh, to do mental health assessments, the doctor has to be what we call a Section 12 doctor, Section 12 of the Mental Health Act, special experience around Mm. patients with mental disorder. And um, in some areas, they've got a very effective router around the provision of Section 12 doctors when they're needed but those people, you know, they're not sitting around reading the newspaper waiting to be called for assessments. They're running clinics. They're seeing patients. They're not always immediately available. And frankly, some of the areas of the UK, the the provision is done on a voluntary basis. So the, there's just a list of Section Twelve doctors, and it's a bit like a phone book. You pick your list and you ring one. And hi, doctor, are you free? Sorry, I'm having dinner. I'm not. I'm not making myself available. And the AMP has to go to the next one. And the the stories of you know dozens, literally dozens of of calls is is not. Exceptional. Yeah. So the and in fact, so, in fairness, if the police were at a job or the ambulance service were, and you called upon an amp, you may well have a very willing amp who's more than happy to drop everything and come running. And um, whether they can secure a doctor is a difficulty. Even if they can secure a doctor, one final obstacle to a safe admission sometimes is whether there's a mental health bed available in a hospital for admission. Uh, if you're using one, three, five, or six, the provision of a bed is not crucial because those two provisions, one, three, five, and six. Or just about taking somebody to any safe place to keep them safe. And that could be an A&E department or um, just a, a part of a mental health unit where there's a safe room with a few chairs a to sit in. A custody suite, or is in
1: that...?
2: A, it, it used to be prolifically custody. Yeah, and, and then they've moved and it, away from that. It's not a complete ban. It's a complete ban for children. So anyone under 18 can't go into police custody, ever. Um, but adults still can in what are now some very closely defined exceptional circumstances, and it basically amounts to... Uh, people who are exhibiting very dangerous behaviours that are going to seriously injure other people. So if you had a you know, a 75-year-old dementia patient who was not hurting a soul, but very vulnerable from self-neglect because their dementia is quite advanced, um, you certainly couldn't take uh, a person like that, thankfully, to a police station. Uh, it then raises the question, where do you take them? And it could be an A&E department, it could be a mental health unit that has a... What some people call a place of safety or a 136 suite it's just essentially a, an empty safe room that's calm and uh there's provision for a bit of food and drink and a shower or a toilet or bathroom if you need one um and th- there should be provision like that in every area some areas have got enough provision other areas sometimes haven't and that's why you sometimes find examples on social media where police forces are uh regrettably re- lamenting the fact they've ended up with maybe sometimes half a dozen sometimes a dozen officers in A&E departments with people detained under the Mental Health Act who are either pending assessment or more often pending the availability of a mental health bed. Um, and all of that is what, in fairness to the AMPS, they're, they're often seen as the the, the centre of the process, but they're so dependent on the provision of doctors and beds and places for people to safely be, right. that that sometimes prevents them doing what they would accept that they would love to do.
1: You're listening to Justice with Edwina Grosvenor.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: So you're on Twitter as The Mental Health Cop and you have a blog. And you seem to be someone who's always campaigning for better training, better education, better awareness. So what is it exactly that you would like to see sort of happen? Where would you like to get the police force too, when it comes to mental health, because it's such a thorny area.
2: I've got two things in my head I'd love to achieve, and, and they're, they're what some people would call an infinite game. This is not You're not going to get there, it's just about pursuing how close you can be. So the first thing is, I want us to reduce the reliance, not just on the police, but the criminal justice system as a crisis and mental health care provider. Um, you know from your own work in prisons, how many people in prison have got serious mental illness, uh, we know all about how often it difficult it can be to transfer prisoners from the prison estate into the hospital estate when they need that. Um, of course, the police are part of the gateway that pushes people one way or the other because sometimes officers are investigating allegations where we know somebody's highly vulnerable. They may even be seriously, acutely, mentally ill. But if there's a criminal offence somewhere in the mix of all of this, it can be a complex old decision about whether you prosecute and pursue an offence because of the level of gravity in the, in the incident or whether you focus a bit more on their mental health and say, well, in terms of a therapeutic outcome that might reduce re-offending and prevent uh, recurrence in the future, maybe the mental health route might be a different, a a better route to go. So for me, I wanna reduce, the first thing is to reduce reliance on the police and the criminal justice system to the extent that we can. You'll never completely eradicate that because sometimes people with mental health problems commit serious offenses and sometimes in circumstances where despite their illness, they are still criminally culpable as the law stands. Um, and that's, there's lots of academic stuff about that that's really interesting to read. But the the, the second thing for me is uh, it's not just about reducing the reliance on the police and the criminal justice system. It's then about the police and justice system improving the quality of what they do when they are involved, whether preventably involved or not preventably involved. Um, you know, if somebody's on a, on a bridge, on a motorway network, threatening to jump, that's a police job all day long. How you untangle it afterwards to discuss whether it was preventable, whether we could have done something different, and indeed how you discuss afterwards whether you prosecute the person for the offence, because it is a criminal offence to bring them out of to a halt. Um, there's a you know big old philosophical debates in there about if somebody's on a bridge threatening to jump, when is it right inverted commas, when is it appropriate to criminalise them for that, versus when is it appropriate to divert? And and how do you make that decision and frankly who makes that decision? That, that there's whole textbooks written about this sort of stuff and academics have studied it for decades and then we we put our cops with our four hours to two days worth of training into this get them to work alongside mental health nurses who also themselves would probably admit they haven't got as much legal training loads of clinical nursing training of course but comparatively not necessarily any legal training about criminalization and reoffending and all the stuff that you're interested in in terms of how you uh, provide a response that does focus on the long-term stuff about rehabilitation and prevention in the future. It's all mm. about punishing people. It's a place for that. But, you know, part of it has to be about, is the short-term punishment and the long-term thing a contradiction? Yeah. And how do you straddle that?
1: I've always sort of dreamt of one central training place or maybe sort of regional training places where actually prison officers, police, probation officers, nurses, doctors, you know, there's a place where actually maybe... There's an argument to say that there needs to be training across all of those things, because as you say, you know, all these little bits are interconnected and one person can go through that range of professions that I just said. Yeah. Yet a lot of the professional individuals have no idea what the job of a probation officer is or what life is like really for a frontline officer. And you sort of think, surely there's something there that could be done. I mean, that's not like putting a man on the moon, is it?
2: No, it's so- not. So you, you need to know about, and you need to go and have a look at something called Respond Training in Respond the northeast of England. Training. Yeah, Northumbria Police and their mental health colleagues in the NTW Mental Health Trust. And um, they've come up with something called Respond Training. It doesn't stand for anything. It's just about the concept of multi-agency response to people. And um, what they do is they it's, it's I, I watched this thing twice. It's really worth seeing... You, you turn up to a course and you're told in advance, you have to turn up in sort of plain casual clouds. And when you get in the room, you're not allowed to tell anybody what your surname is or what your profession is. You are just, in my case, Michael and I'm here for the course, and then they put you through a whole day's worth of stuff based on emergency mental health stuff involving the police so one of their scenarios is for example a guy who's looking vulnerable on the Tyne Bridge uh, the incident unfolds that he's now sitting on the edge of the bridge looks like he might be gonna jump people are calling the police and it takes you right through a journey of 136 of the Mental Health Act where eventually he's in a place of safety being assessed and they paper feed this thing in, a, in sort of six or seven stages. And the members of the of the audience, uh, the, the students on the course, if you like, are a mixture of police officers, AMPs, mental health nurses, doctors, paramedics. and um, They also have people in there with lived experience who are also just told, just turn up and say that your name is Michael. Uh, they go through the training together. And of course, everybody spends all day trying to say, oh, I think you're a nurse or you're probably a cop. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it just brings them together in a useful way. And what, what Northumbria have found is... Some of the people that have been through this course are then the next week or the week after being on the front line at a job where someone else from the course from another agency turns up and you have the cop from the course with the paramedic from the course talking to each other at the same job and now they get on with each other because they've already spent a day locked in a room together.
1: Is there any sense that sort of something sensible like this might go national? Because of course, you know, I constantly hear about oh, there's a really good thing in this prison or there's a really good thing in this police yeah. force, there's something good in this county. Why is there such a reluctance from anyone at the top of these professions to kind of go, right, that is really sensible. Um, So therefore, this does need to go national as opposed to just sitting in areas. Well, I mean,
2: Northumbria have said they'll make their material available just for uh, essentially for the cost of the provision of the materials. They'll happily send their people to places to explain how the, the concept and how it works and so on. Um, other areas have, have started looking at it. London, the Met Police have been up to the northeast to mm. look at it. Uh, I don't think anybody at the top of the professions is saying, no, you shouldn't roll that out. I just think um, it must be said, Northumbria and their partners up there, they've got a really good relationship in a way that, if I'm also honest, some areas don't. There, there are some parts of the UK where the police and the mental health trust... Have not got that trust and confidence in each other, which is prevalent in the northeast, and and sometimes that is about um, the you know the, the stuff that's motivated the Therefore, police. Surely
1: they need it more than anyone. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's the irony. Yeah, quite. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I suppose you can't then make it happen if they don't. Yeah, they're bu- not willing to. beautifully
2: observed. But if you if you can't get you know the middle-ranking police officers leading on mental health in the same room as the equivalent mental health managers because for example they're still falling out about an incident that's going through the coroner's Mm. court system and so on where agencies inevitably withdraw into themselves when there's suggestion of well was it your fault was it our fault who contributed to this sort of incident um it just gets all caught up i think in the 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 differences of boundaries and borders northumbria again at the risk of labouring the point they've got one mental health trust and one police force who are more or less co-terminus but for example i'm a west midlands officer we've got four mental health trusts in our area and one of them um is not completely within our force area it overlaps into a different police force area so it then starts to get difficult if west midlands police wanted one thing for example and we wanted it to apply in coventry coventry's mental health services are probably going to say oh, well that's fair enough but can we also have warwickshire police in the game because we cover warwickshire and coventry
1: so can you give me an example of where maybe it might have gone wrong because of course so going back to you're the bobby on the beat, you have to make a split decision um whether someone's vulnerable mentally ill whatever the possibility of getting that wrong is high and you might need to use force or kick a door down or whatever you might need to do and then what's the fallout if and when you get it wrong
2: there's no hiding away from the fact that some of the major incidents in the history of policing that have gone badly wrong and been reputationally devastating for the service nationally um, are some incidents which are mental health related deaths in police custody or deaths following contact. Um, so in, in just in recent years, you, you you could look at cases like the death of Sean Rigg in London, uh, the death of Kingsley Burrell in Birmingham, uh, the death of James Herbert in Somerset, Thomas Orchard in Devon and Cornwall. Um, in fact, that last example is very topical in the sense that the the Chief Constable of Devil and Cornwall, um, his office is currently a defendant in a criminal court arguing about the extent of liability for health and safety breaches arising from uh, Mr Orchard's death in exit the police custody back in October right. 2012. And these were
1: people who all died in police custody, or is it all a range of...
2: Or following contact, or in proximity with the police. So, right. for example, in the death of Senny Lewis and Kingsley Burrell, they were actually detained Mental Health Act patients in a hospital, and the police service were called into a mental health unit because of an incident where there had been disorder on the ward connected to the patients and their condition, and the police were being asked to restrain in some way, shape or form. In, in Senny's case, the request was, could, they, could officers assist the ward staff to move him from the ward to a seclusion room in a different part of the hospital. Um, In Kingsley Burrell's case the request was could you move him from one mental health unit in uh, West Birmingham to a, a mental health unit in South Birmingham because there was no seclusion facility available in West Birmingham's unit therefore they had to go to the nearest next one which is a sort of four mile drive across the city so could the police and ambulance service transfer him from the one unit to the other unit. Um, So the the person was not in the legal custody of the police, strictly speaking. They were detained under the Mental Health Act as an NHS patient. But the police service had been asked to assist and support in, in various ways.
1: If you're found to have had some impact on that person's death following a restraint, then... What sort of happens? Officers get sacked or you get sued or, I mean, what?
2: Um, all of the above. All of the above. Um, there, there, there have been examples of officers being sacked for gross misconduct after uh, deaths following contact with uh, patients with mental health problems. Um, there have been high-profile gross misconduct hearings where, you know, from a from family's point of view, I can fully understand that where if there is a gross misconduct hearing into officers and then the officers are cleared, there's then suggestion of a cover-up um, which you can fully understand, because you think, well, if, if somebody who was essentially fit and healthy from a physical healthcare point of view, in terms of like their, their heart and their physiology, if they then had a restraint by the police and ended up dead then surely it, it, you know, the perception would arguably be, and, and not unfairly, that the officers should be trained to be able to at least keep people alive. And therefore, if somebody has died following uh, contact and restraint, there should be accountability for that. Um, in some of the cases I've already listed, there have been criminal investigations into the officers for whether or not they're guilty of manslaughter or uh, assault or, or willful neglect. Um, There have been criminal trials of police officers where they've been cleared of allegations of those kinds. Uh, The Thomas Orchard officers, for example, were prosecuted twice for manslaughter. The first jury didn't reach a verdict. The second jury found them not guilty. Um, There are Misconduct, gross misconduct proceedings pending for those officers still so there'll be a second here well a third hearing in their case
1: are they the stats that are going up or down on sort of deaths in police custody um, or
2: they've they've come down significantly since the turn of the century but it's recently been observed by the independent office of police conduct who publish a report every year about deaths in custody or deaths following contact that there has been an upturn so if you'd asked me a year or two ago i'd have said typically on average there'd be about you know, between maybe 14 and 17 deaths in police custody every year and roughly half of them would be mental health related in some way shape or form but the figure in the last report was 21 so it's it's gone up a little bit but that's down from maybe 40 or 45 at the turn of the century so there has been a general downward trend
1: so you might have someone in front of you um with clear mental health problems but it appears they also have a drug-induced psychosis and they're causing trouble in the local area Where do you go with that in the sense that do they get arrested because they've broken into someone's house or do they not because if they're vulnerable, then actually the mental health card comes into play and they maybe don't go to the police custody suite and it's not progressed because I've heard lots of stories of things like that happening and you go, well, hold on, I get that they've got a mental health problem, but they've also broken into someone's home and definitely caused criminal damage. So... Where's
2: the line there? Yeah, it's not a line, it's a grey area. Right. Um, or maybe that just means it's a wide line. But uh, whatever analogy we use, the, um, there's been a huge debate for years about if you've got a crime involved in an incident where there's also a mental vulnerability and or a substance abuse complexity, should the police be arresting for the crime and should the police be prioritising the medical vulnerability side of things? Well, usually you get quite trite examples at the extreme so that, you know, if somebody has murdered somebody, they're going to be arrested for murder regardless of their health. And if they need immediate help, they can be taken under arrest for murder to an A&E department or indeed to a mental health unit. And at the other end, if you've got somebody who's very, very vulnerable, who's stealing food just because they're really hungry and they're sleeping rough, then you might imagine and real examples show that this happens, that the officers might say, look, if this guy's seriously mentally ill, um, let's prioritise his illness. So we ask cops to make black and white decisions out of endless and infinite shades of grey. And all you can do is say to the cops, that the general principle is we don't want to criminalise vulnerable people when they're ill, but at the same time, we want to investigate thoroughly things that can't just be immediately set aside as trivial. So against that framework, you've got to go out and make a professional judgement about whether you think the context and the facts of the case are sufficiently trivial that they can be just immediately set aside like the vulnerable guy who stole a packet of sandwiches from ASDA in the West Midlands because he'd been living in the local park for three days and he was in a state, he was messy, uh, he was psychotic and he was hungry and that was it. Well, ASDA don't care about the sandwiches in the scheme of things, let's be honest. Um, He was detained under the Mental Health Act and and taken uh, to a mental health unit for assessment. But... Hypothetically, and he hadn't done this, but if he, for example, had resisted the security guard who stopped him shoplifting and grievously assaulted him to the point where there's a, a grievous bodily harm level injury, he probably would, and I would argue, should be arrested for the offence purely to investigate it. Because even at the end of an investigation, where you're in that more middle territory or more serious territory, it doesn't oblige you to prosecute for the offence. You could get to the end of your investigation and say, well, we won't prosecute yet. We can now let him go to hospital. Or... We won't prosecute at all.
1: That indicates that there should be some middle ground and maybe that judgment should be taken when there is calm and when all the facts of the situation have landed. Yeah. Is that possible?
2: Yes, it is. (laughs) And it's possible in two ways. You could Because increasingly in the last decade, we've seen the emergence of what are called liaison and diversion services in police custody. And this is the idea of having mental health nurses available for most of the 24 hour clock. Um, to provide screening assessments, information sharing to the police to not only identify what the health needs of the person are but also to help the officers make a more informed and better decision about prosecution to, to give a, a a good example if you had a, a person who has never been in trouble with the police before and they have punched a person causing a GBH level injury but they hadn't intended to cause that level of injury it was what we would call grievous bodily harm without intent section 20 wounding as we sometimes call it Um, If a person's never been in trouble with the police before, and they're seriously, seriously mentally ill, and the victim they've hurt is a relative who isn't actually ringing the police to say, I'm a victim of crime, please prosecute this person, but they're ringing to say, this is my relative, he's really poorly, please help this person, it might be that you can say, well, that's still a middle-ranking, more serious offence, but let's not prosecute, because A, the victim doesn't want to, B, it's a serious mental illness issue as well, and see, it's a one-off event. It's out of character and has never happened before. It would be proportionate to say, we don't have to prosecute this. Yeah. So you put it all together in a mixing bowl and you see what it looks like when you've stirred it up. And you then have to just take a professional judgment within the boundaries set down by guidance and codes of practice and things like that.
1: You're listening to Justice with Edwina Grosvenor. So where does trauma come into all of this? I learnt that mental health services in this country generally don't address trauma. Obviously the word trauma is being banded around a lot now and you've got the adverse childhood experiences and people seem to be catching on. But when I heard that, and I heard that from three NHS psychiatrists that I met once a couple of years ago, and I said, oh, I heard this thing, it can't possibly be true. And they sort of looked at each other and looked a bit embarrassed. They were like, well, it is true, really. We don't have training about trauma. So this literally blew my mind. (laughs) I almost didn't believe them. But of course it was true because they know what they're talking about. I don't know much about the NHS. But so it is true. So... Discuss. (laughs) Discuss.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, the, the police service, not just around mental health, actually, but generally have, have started getting very interested very recently in um, in ACEs and childhood experiences yeah, and so on Yeah, because so of on. course
1: it is the trauma that leads to people's mental health problems, and it is trauma Absolutely. that leads to violence.
2: Yeah, and so, you know, some quick stats that leap to mind are things like 75% of adults with a serious mental illness began developing their serious mental illness when they were a, an adolescent or, or even a child. Um, Obviously, a lot of that comes around adverse experiences from poverty and childhood and abuse and neglect and various other things. Um, And we've always known in youth justice spheres within policing that, you know, if you speak to the officers who spend all day every day dealing with, you know, the the 12 and the 13 year olds who are having their first or third contact with the police after minor offences, that we're usually dealing with people who are coming from backgrounds that are less than ideal, to say the very least. So we've always known that there's a route and a pathway and a conveyor belt if you want to use that. Uh, line uh you know for many people that were coming into but you know in, getting back to mental health when it, you know when you start on this journey as a police officer getting interested in it First thing I did, frankly, because I couldn't think of anything else to do was read the law, because as a policeman, you think, well, the law's kind of my territory, so I'll read the mental health law. Yeah. But you know, eventually I bumped into really inspiring amps and nurses and doctors who made me read books. They've loaned me books. They've told me to buy books and things like that. And you realize there is a huge number of different perspectives about mental illness, what causes it, how you treat it, how you react accordingly. There are endless discussions about pathways and models and medical models and biopsychosocial models. And you, know, you can untangle all this at length if you need to. But um, where I've kind of got my head to it at the moment is that um, mental health care as provided by the NHS is done with a a certain set of paradigms in mind because mental health care for lots of reasons tends to be what you might call medically led because under the Mental Health Act we have the AMPs who typically are social workers Mm -hmm. but they can't do a thing without a psychiatrist giving a medical opinion. Um, And I can't get my head past the fact that when you speak to patients about what they want from the NHS and when you speak to the NHS about what they offer to patients... They're very definitely really not the same thing in all too many circumstances. Of course, absolutely clearly and upfront, some patients have gone to the NHS, had exactly what they felt they wanted and needed, and actually attribute their life still being a a living thing to the fact that they've had fantastic care from the NHS. But there's all too many dialogues. We saw this in the review of the Mental Health Act last year, actually. It's an organisation called the National Service Users Network, NSUN. Um, who went on record writing letters to the chair of the Mental Health Act Review, Professor Sir Simon Wesley, to say that they felt that the review wasn't taking a wide enough look at how the law reinforces certain paradigms and certain views of mental health and that it is about not excluding, but perhaps not paying enough attention to things like trauma and ACEs and adverse experiences and so on and so on.
1: So 50 years time, take your head that far forward um what does sort of the mental health world the policing world the criminal justice world you know what would good look like for you
2: all of it's got to be about better training and and collaborative training we've if we don't get cops nurses psychiatrists and others to get on more of the same page excepting we might have slightly different strategic objectives and purposes ultimately the police the nurses the doctors the amps everybody else we're trying to keep people safe that's all we're trying to do And there's different ways of looking at that. There's different models and theories that feed into how we do that. But we can agree on the common territory that we are trying to keep people safe. And in the police, it might be more about being physically safe or secure. And in the health world, it might be more about being safe in the sense of healthy and prosperous. Um, But there's an overlap there about safety. So it's about focusing on what's common to these things, not about what's focusing about what's different. But we do have to remember that when laws govern things, that Parliament lay down laws that are not ideal, because we began by remarking on 1983 Mental Health Act, Um, What I didn't emphasise at the time is large parts of the 1983 Act are actually just the 1959 Act put in a different order with the numbers, the sections renumbered. Um, So section 2, 3 and 4 and section 135 and 136, all of that you'll find in the 1959 Mental Health Act as well. So this is a time when we had massive county asylums, Buddy Holly was singing live music and I wasn't alive (laughs) and my father wasn't even thinking about it and we're still policing in the 21st century when we've now got a very human rights oriented, very health and safety oriented culture and we've got in, in a large respect, the, exactly the same laws that we're playing with. Think about how medicine's advanced in 60 years. Think about how mental health care has advanced. Even prisons have changed in 60 years. And yet the rules we're playing with, criminal law rules as well as some mental health law rules, are exactly the same rules. The, the law was structured in a way that has is predicated on the idea that there are always mental health beds available mm. when mental health beds are needed. But over the 60 years, we have radically reduced... From way over a hundred thousand inpatient places in the 50s and 60s we're now down to fewer than 20,000 or roughly 20,000 inpatient places so we where this is the, the size of the population is immensely larger and yet we've got about a fifth of the general sort of what we would now call general psychiatric adult beds inevitably that means fewer proportionately and actually fewer people get those beds than was the case before and much more of the care is community oriented care so whether rightly or wrongly and whether the police like it or not, They're going to have a role of some level and some description as a community mental health responder, because the way in which crisis unfolds, it sometimes involves unpredictable aspects, whether that's in terms of timing or context, whether it's weapons, whether it's somebody self-harming. And with the best will in the world, the, the days are gone where the ambulance service might rock up to something, for example, and... You know, they, they typically, you know, in the 60s might recruit blokes who can lift heavy weights because they're moving stretchers around. Well, we, we don't employ ambulance crews on the same basis. They've got different skills and training profiles. They're deployed to similar sorts of incidents. They're going to need police support in many respects. So much of this stuff is about focus on the safety side of it. Um, and for me, I think the big thing that's required is to put the, the public back at the centre of this because we could debate all day long whether something's a police job or an ambulance job or a mental health job. And that gets far too tedious, far too quickly. The punchline of it is, yes, we have to delineate about what we do because we do want the police to be focusing on some exclusively police stuff like chasing knife crime suspects and stopping and searching people and arresting people for crimes. We don't want them to neglect that on the basis that they are, for example, sitting in mental health units waiting for people to be assessed. There's a balance to be struck. But the balance for me is about not going too far and arguing the police have no role to play a phrase I've used a lot on the blog that, that I write is um, instead of saying, you know, people with mental health conditions or people with mental health problems or whatever, I use the phrase, um, those of us with mental health problems, and that's deliberately ambiguous to sort of leave possible the idea I've got mental health problems, because whether I have or whether or not isn't the point. The point is, I'm just a person, you're just a person, people are living lives, you know, people who might haven't got mental health problems today might have had 10 years ago or might have, had to, might have tomorrow. The point is, we're all just people in the same society, and you know, to try and think of an us and them thing is a false dichotomy. Absolutely. Uh, just like the mad, bad thing. I hate that, you know, is he mad or is he bad? Well, actually you can be both or neither or yeah. just the one or the other. It's not really a thing.
1: People can misunderstand that if someone is mad or bad, even though we don't like those terms, there's often a really good reason why they're like that. And this comes back to the trauma that people have suffered. You know, even the sort of gravest of crimes and, you know, the sort of serial killers. When you actually look into their childhoods and what's happened to them it isn't to excuse what they've done of course but you have to understand the violence where it comes from if you're going to be the people on the front line who are having to deal with the fallout of a horrific childhood you know and surely it's about the de-escalation of further violence the de-escalation of fear because of fear fear just tips over into violence and of course that's when people lash out when they're fearful and they're usually fearful because something awful's happened to them at some point point so sort of a bit of understanding around that within the training as well surely yes it won't be the silver bullet but hopefully it would make a bit of bit of a difference
2: great as a psychiatrist i used to work at broadmoor said something really flippant and off the cuff um ages ago to me that stuck with me and i've thought about it ever since and he said michael there's a huge difference between fear and anger and you need to know the difference And when you think about incidents I've been to, I reflected on incidents I had already been to at that point where he said this. And I thought, you know, this is, that's actually groundbreaking. And why haven't I thought of that before? I was almost embarrassed I hadn't realized it. But you think about incidents where, you know, you, you get dressed up a bit like the police get dressed up and you knock on a door. Well, who hasn't had a knock on the door from the police where you think, oh who's dead or what have I done? Yeah, they're not coming around for good news, uh, I should imagine. Um,
1: It's endlessly fascinating and I'm sure we could chat for weeks on end. But if people wanted to learn more about this area because it's so complex, we've sort of probably not even scratched the surface, to be honest. Um, How do they sort of find you? Have you written articles? I know you've got your blog. Where's your blog? Where can people find that?
2: Yeah, the blog is uh, mentalhealthcop.wordpress.com. Uh, it's on Twitter as at MentalHealthCop. Uh, if people use Facebook, it's also uh, on It's a Facebook page that I run, uh, facebook.com slash MentalHealthCop. Um, so it's all under that one name. If you Google search it, it comes up. And there are links to the social media from the blog as well. So And if people
1: up, have specific questions?
2: Yeah, get in touch. Yeah? Yeah, our front page of the blog, if you scroll to the bottom of it, uh, there's a contact sheet where you can put in your name, your email address, or even just an email address, put a question, put a query, put a comment, and it comes through to me as an email um, people can also leave comments directly onto, onto recent posts um, if they want to comment on a recent article. So I, I try to be as interactive as I can be on there because what I've typically found is, um, although the blogging and the social media, frankly, was partly to raise awareness of the role of the police and to try and help cops get this right, the unintended consequences have been, it seems, to have a, a wider appeal. And we've had members of the public as well as mental health professionals who used it and said, oh, I didn't realise that the police can't do that or that the police can do that. And it, it seems to be, you know, building up a, a little head of steam that's just hopefully helpful. And, and that's what I, that's all I've aimed to try and do in this is, you know, if, if it just makes it a little bit easier for a cop to police something, makes them a little bit more aware of something, or if it helps a family push a button with services, whether it's the police or whether it's with mental health, then, then great, that's what it's all about.
1: Brilliant. Thanks so much for being yeah, with pleasure. us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Justice. If you found it interesting, you can discover more about the work we do within the justice system by visiting our website onesmallthing.org.uk One Small Thing is a charitable organisation striving for positive change in the justice system. If you would like to subscribe to Justice, you can do so via your usual podcast platform.